You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Dead authors, fresh takes, and the epilogues you never knew you needed. And shivers down your spine Shrieking skull will shock your soul Seal your doom tonight Spooky, scary skeletons Speak with such a screech You'll shake and shudder in surprise When you hear these zombies Hello and welcome to Oh No Lit Class The podcast that they say used to live right around these parts But they've been dead for 20 years I'm Ghost Megan I'm Zombie Jay And this is... One of our spooky Halloween episodes, because we get two, which is awesome. I love Halloween. Halloween's my favorite. RJ, how do you feel about Halloween? A waste. (laughs) Of? Space, time, energy. Wow, says the man who bought a pair of skin-tight red pants for his costume. Don't dox me, bro. Well, you know what? I've got enough Halloween spirit for the both of us. Like, I'm, I'm filled to the fucking brim with spooky time goodness. What was that? I don't know. It was over there. <laughs> maybe it was a ghost. Yeah, maybe it was your cat. Actually, I think it was your pink shirt. Oh, fell? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Ooh. It's really hard to have the, the fall Halloween spirit in South Florida, but goddammit, we're going to do our best and to kick things off. We have the king of spookums and Halloweenness. The Monster Mash? I mean, it's a graveyard smash, but no. We have Dracula. Oh, isn't he the Monster Masher? Like, isn't he the ringleader of the Monster Mash? No, how long has it been since you heard the Monster Mash? Oh, which one there's, is? There's even a line where Dracula comes in and he's like, but whatever happened to the Transylvania twist? And they go, it's now the Mash. It's now the Monster Mash. So, like, you're just bad at novelty Halloween songs. So, who is the leader <laughs> of the Monster Mash? I guess, like, Dr. Frankenstein? Because he was working in the lab late one night when his eyes beheld an eerie sight and his monster arose from the slab, etc., etc. Okay. Well, no, we're talking about Dracula by Bram Stoker. And I don't know why I said it that way, because he's Irish. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> yeah, well. Dracula is probably one of the most adapted, most recognized sort of monster character in history in like any form of media and we're we're gonna get to that at the end and this book is kind of what took uh the vampire from like just sort of folklore and and things like that and put it into the literary consciousness and y'all y'all know the drill before we can talk about the monster we must talk about the man abraham brahm the irish toker stoker You like that one, huh? He was born on a special day. Halloween? No. St. Patrick's Day? No. I I don't know. November 8th, 1847. Wait, I had the same birthday and I never knew it? Way to dox yourself. Holy shit. How am I doxing myself? My birthday's in November. Yay. Give me birthday wishes. What's the last four uh, digits of your social security number? Oh, the words of Count Dracula fucking bite me. <laughs> now, which part of that were Dracula's <laughs> words? And he died on another special day. Your birthday? No. Aw. It goes with his nickname. April 20th, 1912. <laughs> Smoke him <laughs> if you got him. 420 Stoker. Hey, Abe? No? That's all that. That's all that joke's good for. Word on the street is he... (laughs) Oh, Oh, all right. If you can't even get it out, we know it's going to be good. Word on the street is he died trying to smoke a blunt the size of a baby. (laughs) What the fuck? I couldn't believe it either, but I mean, that was the word on the street. It was 420. He's like, boys, oh, man. If it was 420, I mean, I guess. He wanted to suck one down like Dracula. Gross. He's like, give me the biggest one you got. They gave him a blunt the size of a baby. He died. Anyway, the Toker was uh, born in Dublin, Ireland. Ireland. Uh, yeah. I think I missed that R the first time, which is a big thing with you now. Uh, whatever you say, Mr. Library. 
Library. <laughs> anyway, Toker was born in Dublin, Ireland. His dad was also Abraham Stoker, who was also for Dublin, but was not a Toker. Boo. And Toker's mom was Charlotte Matilda Blake Thornley. It's quite the name. That is. That's a good name. Toker was... Oh my god, is this really going to be your thing? You just call him Toker? He's Brom the Irish Toker Stoker. Yeah, normally you, you go on the first name basis like you're their buddy. This guy's just Toker, though. Oh, you, you're, you're such good friends that you have a wacky weed-related nickname for him. Yeah! <laughs> just keep going. Fine. Brom. Better? Great. Fantastic. He was the third of seven children, which included a sibling named Thornley. So you got, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you got you got Abraham named after Abraham the dad, and you got the brother Thornley named after mom. These uninvented parents, up to their old tricks, I see. Yeah, always. So Brom had a bit of a unique childhood. You see, he was bedridden until the age of seven. Yep. The first seven years of his life were spent in bed. That was a good gig if you can get yeah. it. Or, except for the illness that I assume he was suffering from. Way to take my mind. Not such a bad gig. <laughs> if you can get it, I guess. Oh, Jesus. We've been together for too long. We are we are become the hive mind. And if you are Brom, the Irish toker, it's better to wake and bake and lay rather than wake and bake and have to get up. Oh, uh, this has got diminishing returns already. <laughs> They never figured out what Brom was sick with. But then one day, he got better. He was just no longer better than one day. Brom managed to have the time between his smoke sessions to say of this time period, quote, I was naturally thoughtful, and the leisure of long illness gave opportunity for many thoughts, which were fruitful according to their kind in later years. All right, that does kind of sound like something someone who was stoned would say. I'll give you that. He was having some deep thoughts. After healing, he began his education, which was at a private school run by the local reverend. Now, ironically, the bedridden boy became an excellent athlete. In fact, he was named Best University Athlete at Trinity College in Dublin, which he attended from 1864 to 1870. Now, if Trinity College sounds familiar, that's because another Ono Liquas alumnus Attended the college at the same time as Brom. You might remember him for beating the crap out of his fellow classmates and owning a delightful set of blue china. Yeah, that man being the embodiment of blue china himself, Oscar the Wild Man Wild. (laughs) And the two actually did manage to cross paths while in college together. Brom seems like he was actually a pretty cool dude. What do I base this on? We'll try this on for size. He was the auditor of the College Historical Society. Nerd. Pretty, pretty cool. Nerd. Not only that, Brom was also the president of the University Philosophical Society. Nerd. How did Oscar Wilde even hang out with him? Oscar Wilde was like smoking behind the school, giving out like hand jobs or something. Wrong. Brom Stoker. I have to keep reminding myself that is his name. Mm-hmm. A Toker. <laughs> See what you did to yourself. Party animal. Okay, but really, Oscar Wilde joined the Philosophical Society with Brahms' nomination and approval. And thus, the two live in Ono Liquas happiness ever since. Somehow I doubt that. Oh, we'll get to that. Back to Brahm, who, like any good aspiring writer, graduated with honors with a B.A. in mathematics. Do you think it's Bram and we just sound like idiots now? Bram Stoker? Abraham. Oh, shit. Yeah. We gotta start from the beginning. (laughs) Bramstoker. I didn't think of it either. <laughs> wow. That's what if you call him the Irish Toker, you can't be wrong. I suppose so. Bram. Bram, Bram Stoker. Bram, Bram. Let's just, we'll switch back and forth. Doesn't matter. We're gonna, we look dumb either way now. How about 8 Gram? Yeah, there we go. 8 Gram Bram. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is so bad. <laughs> From there, Bram, also known as Abe, also known as the Irish Toker, took up an interest in the theater. Bram became the theater critic for the Dublin Evening Mail. Now, at the time, theater critics were generally held in low esteem, but Bram had a way with words and managed to attract a bit of a following due to the quality of his reviews. During this time, 
Bran began to write stories that were published, although it was his work as a critic that allowed him his lifestyle and also allowed him to travel to sea shows that took place in England as well as other locales. In 1878, at the age of 31, Stoker married Florence Balcombe. She was known in the hood as being the hottest girl around. Go figure, her former suitor was none other than Oscar the Wild Man Wild himself. Ha! Huh. Now, apparently, when Bram began to make his moves on Florence, she and Oscar were still kind of a thing. Oscar was kind of pissed. In the end, Oscar got over it. Maybe because he had some boys lined up for himself. Maybe because he put the old flow in the middle of the circle and she wandered over to Bram. Or maybe because Oscar wished he was the one banging Bram himself. In whatever case, Wilde was upset that Flo chose Bram over him, but did resume his friendship with Bram later on. In fact, Bram was one of the few people who visited Oscar in England after Oscar swore to never return to Ireland and was imprisoned for sodomy. Although that's kind of weird. Oh, we're going to talk about that. Yeah, yeah. No, we're going to talk about that. Anyway, after marriage, Flo and the Toker moved to London, so... Flo and the Toker sounds like an even more terrible sequel to Smokey and the Bandit. Oh, that's a good movie. <laughs> Quick recommendation. Oh, I shouldn't have done this. I should have known this was going to derail you. Smokey and the Bandit 3. The best movie out of the trilogy and really the one you should start with. I think you should watch these movies going backwards. <laughs> so that you end on the most coherent one. Now the third one's the most coherent <laughs> one. That makes perfect sense. There's that guy with daddy issues. There's Daddy. <laughs> There's a guy making believe he's Burt Reynolds. It's perfect. Just such a great sell. Good description of everything that goes on in that movie. Yeah. Anyway, so after marriage, Flo and Mr. Stoker moved to London, so Mr. Toker. No? I'm not saying anything. So that Stoker could become business manager of the Lysum Theater, London. Dude held this job basically for the rest of his life. Now, on December 31st, 1879, Bram and Florence's only child was born, a son whom they christened Irvin Noel Thornley Stoker. Why Irving? Why well, Irving? Oh. Well, <laughs> Henry Irving, who was one of the most famous writers at the time, was also the guy who owned the theater Brahm was working at. And Irving was the individual who got Brahm involved with London's high society. During this time, Bram, Brahm, Got to know James Abbott McNeil Whistler and some guy named Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Never heard of him. Nope. Bram also served as Irving's assistant. So when Irving toured, Bram toured. Ironically, though, Bram never visited Eastern Europe, which is where most of his stories take place, including Dracula. As Irving's assistant, Bram was twice invited to the White House. He got to meet William McKinley and Theodore Roosevelt. During one of the American trips, he got to meet one of his literary heroes, Walt Whitman. Yeah, li literary heroes. I'm winking. I don't know that I'm winking means. right now. He wanted to bang Walt Whitman. Oh, maybe. Before he knew, or not before, well, I guess before he knew Dracula, because he hadn't written Dracula yet. <laughs> before he met Dracula, before he knew him in his soul. So before he wrote Dracula, Stoker met with some guy named Armin Vanbury. Armin was a Hungarian writer and traveler. Couple this with the fact that Stoker spent a lot of time researching old myths and stories from around Europe. The idea for Dracula likely emerged as a marriage between Armin's dark stories from the Carpathian Mountains and Bram's fascination with European folklore. I'd also like to think the time in the White House and finding old Abe Lincoln's lair filled with vampire fighting gear helped push Bram in the whole vampire direction as well. How dare you invoke the the name of Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter in this house? You got Honest Abe over here, and you got <laughs> Abe the Toker Stoker over there. Coincidence? I think not. Oh, God. Or, if you don't like any of those origin stories for Dracula, you could go with Bram's own origin story. Megan, do you know what this origin story is that he says how he came up with Dracula? Uh... Good. He claims that one night... I'm not making this up. Okay. He claims he ate too much crab meat, which caused him to dream about a, quote, vampire king rising from his grave. Man, when I eat bad seafood, I just get the poops. That is what Bram said about coming up with Dracula. Not fair. So, if you've noticed, there isn't all that much we know about Bram, and that's because he was a deeply private man. 
Aside from the stuff I've already discussed, we know that his marriage was apparently sexless outside the one kid they had. Like, apparently they had sex one time. And he had an intense adoration of Walt Women. Like I said, he he wanted to bang Walt Walt Women super hard. Henry Irving and some guy named Hall Kane. And shared interest with Oscar Wilde. Oh yeah, and there's just a pinch of homoerotic salt and spices strewn about the tasty morsel known as Dracula. Just just a little. It's just just a little bit gay. All of this is to say that there are some scholarly uh, speculations out there that Stoker was a repressed homosexual who used his fiction as an outlet for his sexual frustrations. Or to put it another way... Bram may have been one man. Oscar Wilde was unable to seduce fully. Mm. No one got Bram's D. Not Oscar, not his wife, nobody. The one thing that really sucks, too, is that he kind of was closeted in that that way where it's like, What? Gay? I'm not gay. Gays are terrible. We should put them all in jail. Yes, in 1912, in fact, Bram demanded imprisonment for all homosexual authors in Britain. Yeah, and that, that includes our buddy Oscar. Scholars suggest that this was due to self-loathing and to disguise his own vulnerability of, you know, being lavender. What? Being lavender. That's a that's a slang thing? Yeah. I've never heard it. Yeah. I, I, a little light in the loafers? <laughs> that one I've heard, which also seems weird. Like, gay, gay people have the power to defy gravity. Yeah. Which would be cool instead of, you know, the power to be generally persecuted. So if things are heavy, that means they're really straight. So is that what Marty McFly was trying to tell Doc Brown about the future? Doc, things are so heavy. It's so heterosexual here, Doc. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been a good conversation. Marty, is there something wrong with Earth's gravitational field in the future? Holy shit, that's such a bad Doc Brown. You're always saying things are heavy, Marty. Stop, please stop. No, jeez. In his later years, Bram suffered a series of strokes. Eventually dying, succumbing to the complications they caused, or the story goes. Are things about to get spooky? So, in a way. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, some biographers claim that he really died from syphilis. Oh, that's that's not as spooky. Oh, <laughs> well, you get it from sex. Sex he was not having with his wife, so now it's a sex mystery. Ah, some say that's the best mystery of all. So, the listeners of Ono Lit Class got to decide. What killed the toker? Not a blunt the size of a baby. Oh, I see. I'm still sticking to that, though. Either way, he was cremated and his ashes were placed in a display urn at the Golders Green Cemetorium in North London. The ashes of Irving Noel Stoker, the one son him and the wife had, were added to his father's urn following his death in 1961, which is weird as shit, right? They added the son's ashes to dad's ashes in the same urn. And then they put him up in a can and shook it. Like, I don't... I mean, the original plan had been to keep Bram and his wife's ashes together, but her right. ashes were instead just scattered around the garden when she died instead. So huh. instead of making Bram suffer an eternal sentence of being alone, they put his son's ashes in the urn. Or I guess his son wanted to do that since he felt bad. I guess that mom was like, mm, no, no thanks. Wasn't Was with him enough in life. Not about it. And so him and his son are mixed together forever. Nice word choice. So do we want to talk about Vlad the Impaler at all? Oh, Vlad the Sailor Impaler? Taking <laughs> boats around, putting heads on pikes? Yeah, Vlad the Bad, Bad Impaling Lad. Apparently just how much of the connections between Count Dracula, the character, and Vlad the Impaler, the dude. The sailor. Vlad the Impaler, sailor, tailor, are done deliberately is um, kind of a source of debate. So Vlad was a dude who, in the less than 10 years of reign that he held, impaled just a fuck ton of people. Like, some people estimate as much as a hundred thousand. Like, damn! Many of whom were invading Turks. Also, Dracula is a title, not a name, coming from the chivalric order of the dragon, because dragon in Romanian is Dracula. Scholars also are pretty sure that Stoker just saw the word Dracula, went, hmm, neat, and swapped it out for the original name, which was Count Wempire. Yeah. 
vampire, but with a W. So, I mean, good good thinking, Stoker. Good good on you. Oh, they pronounce <laughs> W's as V's, you see. Either way, it's fucking dumb, so Drac- Dracula's better. <laughs> Let's get to the thrills, the chills, the letters and journal entries, because, yep, this is another story that is epistolary and only told through people's writings. A uh, book is told through writing form. It's someone's writing. <sighs> so you might want to rephrase how you say that one there, champ. No, I think people people get what I mean. It's told through writing from the point of view of the individual characters. If you were a monster, your name would be Count Pedantic. Well, that's pretty good. I'm glad you like it. So, we start the novel through the journal of Jonathan Harker. Young Jonathan is a newly minted lawyer en route from England to Transylvania to do some kind of business thing. Oh, I know what the business was. He's Harker the Sharder. He was going to shart. Do you have a stupid nickname planned for every character? Oh, <laughs> god damn it. Oh, jeez. All right. He's going to he's gonna go do some business with a... Yeah, tra- business. With a Transylvania... So oh, my god. With a Transylvania nobleman. This is going to take a while <laughs> if you're not even going to let me get the first sentence out. <laughs> that's, that's mature. Like the rest of this podcast? <laughs> yeah! Oh, God, all right. He notices that the place he's heading to, Castle Dracula, doesn't appear on any English maps. That's weird. If it's not on an English map, it don't exist. Exactly. Also, when he asks an innkeeper in the town nearest the castle about Count Dracula, the innkeeper and his wife just keep crossing themselves and crying and begging him to take a crucifix with him. Huh, that's weird. Oh, and on a coach taking him most of the way to the castle, he notices that people keep looking at him weird and seem like they're talking under their breath to each other about him using the words, according to his handy-dandy pocket dictionary, devil, hell, and vampire. Jonathan thinks to himself, hmm, I'll have to ask the Count when I meet him what's up with these townsfolk and their crazy superstitions. Uh, Jonathan, you better be cute, because you sure as shit ain't smart. So it's the middle of the night when he finally makes it to the dang castle where he meets a weird, gross, old, pale dude with a long white mustache, pointy ears, and just an uncomfortable amount of body hair. A suave and sexy Dracula, this is not. He's very polite, though, and apologizes to Jonathan that all of his servants are asleep, but that there's a big comfy bed with his name on it. The next day, he and the Count chill out in the library while Count Dracula fanboys about England, where he'll be moving once he buys Carfax Estate from Jonathan's firm. Once he gets the Carfax. Yeah. Yeah. Carfax, Fox, 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 Fox? Yes, that. And he's just so fucking excited to experience English life. And he asks Jonathan, like, will you teach me better English? And what's London like? Is it like in the magazines? Jonathan, please tell me London is just as good as the magazines say it is. And Jonathan's like, sure. Yes, that's he does that. You keep sharding. Sharder and Harker don't even rhyme. Harker and Parker? Parkour? <laughs> keep workshopping. In the meantime, Jonathan notices that he hasn't seen Count Drac eat or drink in the now several days that he's been there. And also there's this incident where he cuts himself shaving and Dracula just appears behind him, like, licking his lips like, Mmm, yeah, boy, give me some of that. And then chucking Jonathan's shaving mirror out the window because, uh, reasons. So I guess actually it would be like, mm, yes, give me some of that. I want it. I'm Dracula. How do you know Dracula talks like that in the book? Because he has an accent. And why? His letters are formed differently? Yes. <laughs> Jonathan begins to get ever so slightly suspicious. More so when he realizes there aren't actually any servants, and it's just him and the Count, like a weird Transylvanian Airbnb. And Dracula is all like, Hey man, don't make this weird. Just stay another month in this empty castle with me. Which also, like, why is it taking so long for them to fill out fucking real estate paperwork that he has to stay there like a month? So he notices Count Dracula crawling out of his bedroom window and down the castle walls like a fucking lizard man and is like, Alright, I don't want to be here anymore. Except the doors are all locked and bolted, so he wanders the castle, looking for a way out, and falls asleep in a random room, waking up to find... Women? Yes! Hot. Not just any women, though. Sexy women. Three of them. My favorite kind. (laughs) 
Jonathan doesn't think to himself, like, where have these three sexy women been hiding in the house this whole time? Or even, I have a fiancé. Because he's too distracted by the... Zip code rule. Really? You're still... (laughs) In the 1800s or 70s? When did this take place? The late 1800s. 1897, to be exact. This guy'd be lucky if he ever found home again. (laughs) Like, got within 100 miles of home. You know, you wander out there, but you're gone for the rest of your life. There's zip code rules in the 1800s. Are you done? I'm just telling it like it is. Whatever. He's distracted by the mystic sexiness of what are, yes, vampire ladies. They almost fuck slash eat him, but Dracula shows up and is basically like, No! No! Bad! I get the first sock. Mine. Mine. And kind of like hits him on the nose with a newspaper. And then he takes a little kid out of his like satchel and is like, This is yours. This is for you. And then they, they like eat the kid and that's just a great visual image in my head of he just pulling a kid out of bag and being like here you go and jonathan's just like nope and he faints and you know who could blame him so when jonathan wakes up all pretense has been dropped and he is a for realsies prisoner he tries to smuggle out letters asking for help but drac keeps finding them he eventually figures out that dracula sleeps during the day and descends into the basement to find him lying in a dirt-filled coffin asleep maybe his eyes are open but he looks kind of zonked out and it's too weird for jonathan so he just leaves uh on what was supposed to be jonathan's last day at the castle aka when dracula will probably kill him he sneaks back down to the basement and finds a younger less icky version of the count mysterious asleep in the dirt and this time he whaps him over the head with a shovel which is a pretty solid plan but for whatever reason, like, even though he's unconscious, Dracula, like, shifts his head a little, and it just kind of makes, like, a dent in his head. And Jonathan just stops, like, well, I guess that's that, then. And he goes back to his room. <laughs> for whatever reason. Only to see boxes and coffins being loaded up outside, which means Dracula is being shipped to England and Carfax estate. And Jonathan's alone in the house with three horny vampire ladies, which... Might be a great Pornhub video, but is overall just a bad situation. So he resolves to climb out the window and try to skitter down the castle walls like a lizardman vampire do. From here we switch to a bunch of different points of view, all of which occur during the same length of time that Jonathan is trapped at Castle Dracula. So first we get letters between Jonathan's fiancée, Mina, who holds the coveted title of one of the smartest people in the book, and her gal pal, Lucy Westenraw, whose main character traits are sexy, virginal, and really, really sexy. Mina writes to Lucy about how she's going to be a school teacher, and she's learning typing and shorthand, and she just misses Jonathan a lot. Lucy writes back that she's having a way better time partying, gallivanting, and being proposed to by three different guys, whose names and major character traits are as follows. Arthur Holmwood. Rich. Dr. Seward. Doctor. Quincy P. Morris. American. Texan, specifically, which is just extra american Lucy makes jokes about how she wishes she could just marry all three of them because she's just so fun and flirty. But in the end, she does, of course, go with the money and picks Arthur. But it's cool. Seward and Quincy are both like, well, okay then. It's cool enough just being friends. Like, all of us are just such good friends. Although this is told to us from Lucy's point of view, so, like, who knows how they really feel? No one can see you making the jerk-off motion, so that's just something I get to enjoy. From there, we switch to Dr. Seward himself, whose journal entries are mostly just him whining about being rejected by Lucy, so see, there you go, and how he runs a mental hospital. It's called a lunatic asylum in the novel because it's the 19th century. And he's gotten a fascinating new lunatic named R.M. Renfield. And so then we swap back and forth between Mina's journal and Seward's journal for a while because this book just aims to exhaust me. Mina is psyched to be vacationing at the seaside with Lucy, virginal sex goddess Westenraw. It's it's a really weird dichotomy because Stoker puts a lot of effort into emphasizing how Lucy is just pure, maidenly, and and like young. She's like like the edge of twenty, but that she's just so sexy. It's like this weird line she's sort of straddling and it comes into play later on in the plot. Lucy talks about how excited she is to be getting married and Mina just harshes her buzz by Oh Lucy, why you get married? What the fuck was that supposed I have to no be? idea. We don't even know. <laughs> like who is that? It started off as Ricky but then it turned into something else. Lucy! 
All right. Well, Mina's being a total buzzkill by being worried that she hasn't heard anything from Jonathan. Also, over the course of the next few weeks, Mina has to deal with Lucy sleepwalking constantly because she can't even sleep without wanting to be social and hang out. Meanwhile, in Seward's journal, he chronicles the activities of his patient Renfield, who captures a bunch of flies. And Seward's like, gross, stop it. So instead, Renfield captures spiders and feeds them the flies. And Seward's like, that isn't at all what I meant. And so Renfield starts capturing sparrows and feeding them the spiders. And Seward's like, this is still bad. Please stop. And so logically, Renfield starts eating the sparrows. And then he asks Seward for a kitten. And Seward's like, fuck, no. Jesus. What's he supposed to fuck? (laughs) Oh no. God, you were just laying in wait for that. He heard guys at the bar saying, man, I had some good pussy on No. I walked right into that. That was my fault. All that weirdness... Sure as hell distracts him from being sad about Lucy, though. So at this point, we pass the date when we last heard from Jonathan trying to escape the castle, and Mina details a ship that crashes into the harbor during a storm, and it's empty, except for a dead captain and a mysterious dog that just runs away. Everyone's like, what's that dog? Oh, it's gone now. That was mysterious. That night, Mina wakes up and sees that Lucy is sleepwalking again, finding her actually this time far away from the house on a hilltop where she sees a dark figure bent over her, with a white face and red eyes. She runs up the hill and loses sight of Lucy for just a moment, and when she finally gets to Lucy, the figure is gone. Mina decides this isn't worth mentioning at all, and instead is just like, Lucy, hide your shame, because Lucy's in her gym jams, and she tries to pin a shawl around her and sees these two small pinpricks on her neck. Ooh. Ooh. After this... Mina finally starts locking the bedroom door, which, of course, begs the question of why she wasn't doing that in the first place. Does it really beg the question? It begs it a little. It would have made, like, things easier and she wouldn't have to keep waking up and worrying about it. Just lock the fucking door. Anyway, weird shit is still going on with Lucy. Mina wakes up and sees her sitting up in her sleep, pointing at the window at, like, a big bat. Uh, She starts looking pale and tired, and the pinpricks on her throat are getting all inflamed and gross-looking, but she can't be worried for too long because she's finally heard from Jonathan, which means he successfully escaped the clutches of the horny vampire women. He's been recuperating at a convent in Budapest, suffering- Death by (laughs) snoo-snoo. Yeah. Yeah. Timely. I could have gave them what they needed. Only three? (laughs) It would have drained you of your blood. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) yeah i would reason with him i got something way better than blood okay we're not gonna finish that sentence orgasms gross he's been recuperating at a convent in budapest suffering from brain fever whatever that means mina is to head to budapest to help him recuperate and get married there and she's so psyched that she's like later loose good luck with whatever the fuck's going on with you and your gross neck thing bye so we flip back to seward who informs us that Renfield has managed to get even weirder, trying to escape and yelling about a master of some kind. Master. Seward doesn't read too much into this, but I guess we can't really blame him for that. Oh, daddy. Yep, yeah, that's it. Renfield's got a, he's got a master daddy kick. I can't even say that. I can't even get through the sentence. Then in- Mr. Daddy. Daddy, daddy? Count daddy. Count daddy. Count daddy. Count daddy. <laughs> I gotcha. This is my dad, Count Daddy. <laughs> Call me Dracula. Count Daddy is my father. What was that dating dad game called? Dream Daddy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Count Dream Daddy. It's the, it's the Halloween DLC. Then, in Letters Between Nina and Lucy, we learn that Mina has married Jonathan, despite his brain fever, and then they leave the plot for a while to go, I don't know, have hot European-style sex somewhere. Probably. We swap over to Dr. Seward, who tells us that Renfield has again managed to raise the weirdness bar because now he isn't doing anything but just sitting and repeating, now I can wait, over and over again. It's no, you'll float too, but it's still pretty creepy. They all float. No, they don't. Some of them float. You know who doesn't float? Pennywise. No, because he's not a a kid that he's going to fucking eat. 
Lucy, meanwhile, keeps getting worse, just feeling gross and tired and terrible. Maybe Mina should have mentioned that, like, hey, when I saw you sleepwalking, there was a weird man who was basically right on top of you, and then he disappeared. He might have poisoned you or something. Just FYI, but nope. Kept that one to herself. Gotta go get married in Budapest. Lucy's fiancé, Arthur, writes Seward and is like, Hey, Lucy's all sick and gross, so maybe go see her for me. I know you're, like, so heartbroken that she didn't choose you that you spend your days watching a crazy man eat bugs, but I'm sure it's no big deal. You're such a good friend. Thanks! So Seward does go see Lucy. And she's pretty bad off, but he can't find anything wrong with her. He runs a blood test and discovers that, well, there's nothing wrong with the blood, per se. There's just less of it. A lot less. And that's weird enough to be above Seward's pay grade, so he enlists in the help of his old friend and former teacher, Dr. Abraham van Helsing. He's actually Dutch. I have no idea what a Dutch accent sounds like. It's just, We're family. I don't... Is it... What? Was he not Vin Diesel? No. Who was he in the movie? What the fuck are you talking about? Which movie? Van Helsing. He was Hugh Jackman. <laughs> 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 shit movie but also those two don't like look or sound or act anything alike never seen either yes you have you and i watched van helsing together hmm. you've seen this movie maybe anyway i don't know what a dutch accent sounds like it's just really fun to say his name like abraham van helsing and i guess that would be austrian accent Van Helsing is great not just because of the name but because he's super smart super competent but also completely fucking strange, unnecessarily mysterious, and eccentric old man. This is why people tend to remember him, and not single-trait characters like Jonathan, or Quincy, or that one rich guy that Lucy's marrying. Anyway, Van Helsing checks out Lucy, but can't find anything definitive. And then suddenly she gets way worse, way quick, and he says she needs a blood transfusion, which is a pretty mean feat back in 18-fucking-97 when doctors are still fighting diseases with, like, leeches and hopes and dreams. And so Seward's like, I am young and strong, I will give her my blood. But then Arthur appears out of nowhere just in time to be like, Nope! My fiancé only gets my blood! But the joke's on Arthur, because it's only a few days later that Lucy stops getting better and needs another blood transfusion. And Arthur's not there, so Seward gets to put his blood in Lucy after all. Metaphors. It seems to work okay. And meanwhile, Van Helsing, who has been acting shifty and weird since he saw Lucy's special vampire hickey, makes her fill her room with garlic flowers, claiming they're medicinal. Now, we all know, like, the trope of vampires not liking garlic because they hate flavor or italians or something guy fieri yeah they, they, hate, they, guy they fieri. hate guy fieri but imagine being lucy and seward and hearing like yeah no put these plants all over your room until everything smells like a calzone there's a very good doctory reason for it but i'm not going to tell you what it is but still they do it it opens up your pores <laughs> except that when they come back to the house the next day lucy's mother is all like yeah lucy I hate you. She's all like, yeah, no, Lucy's room smelled like a Sal's pizzeria, so I cleared that mess right out of there. And of course, Lucy's back to being on the verge of death and needs yet another transfusion. And Seward is too weak from the last time, so now Van Helsing gets to put his blood in her body. This is not a subtle metaphor, Bram, you are gross. Lucy starts to get better, again, when Seward is attacked by Renfield, who cuts him and tries to drink his blood. You starting to add things up? You putting the pieces together? Before Seward can figure out what the fuck that was about, Van Helsing tells him to come to Lucy's house right now because, well, because some crazy shit has just happened. So to set this up, uh, we get a brief newspaper article that tells us about a wolf that escaped from a zoo shortly after the zookeeper saw some tall, thin, old foreign dude giving it head pats, which is already pretty weird. And then after it escapes from its cage, it comes back the next day, all cut up from broken glass. What does that have to do with Lucy, you might ask? I wouldn't. Well, fine, they might ask. So apparently Dracula's solution to not being able to get through locked doors and being repelled by the garlic is to chuck a wolf at the problem until it's not a problem anymore. A bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. So it actually does. The wolf smashes through the window and scares Lucy's mom so hard she dies, and it freaks out the servants so bad that they all need to drink some sherry to chill out. Except someone spiked it with laudanum, 
which was like medicinal opium. Because seriously, man, the 19th century was wild. And they all passed the fuck out, leaving Lucy alone in the house with her dead mom and unconscious servants. So, two things. One, we get all this in a note written by Lucy. So she took the time to write all this down, and it's hilarious, because just picture her scribbling away, surrounded by bodies and wolf wreckage. And two, when and how the fuck did Dracula spike the servants' drinks? Before they drank it. I don't like you. So Seward and Van Helsing get there to see the assuredly very confusing aftermath of all this, and they find Lucy, alive but in dire need of... You guessed it! No, not... No, another fucking blood transfusion. You'd think they'd be wondering where all this blood is going to. Women problems. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, she just... It keeps all coming out... (laughs) Her aunt, her aunt Flo's coming in heavy this month. Why, I, I hate myself for saying that. She's coming in heavy, guys. Pull up, pull up. She, oh, John. Okay. Ah, she's burning up in the atmosphere. So Seward and Van Helsing are still too weak to donate any more blood, so Quincy, the other, other guy she rejected, conveniently shows up out of nowhere to do it. So at this point, she's basically a blood slut. Van Helsing comes in to check on her, and sees that the pinpricks on her neck have not just healed, but disappeared completely. He freaks out and calls Arthur like, uh, so your fiancé might be dying, baby, come. And he does. And when he goes to see her, suddenly she's all sexy. But not like before. Not like that pure, virgin, untouched sexy. Now she's darkly sexy. Like something evil and ruined. And again, Brom, we get it. You're weird about women. Please stop. And she's got the vampire teeth and and everything, and she's all, Oh, Arthur, come and kiss me. And Van Helsing's like, don't do that. But then the moment of vampirism just passes, and she's normal again, and then she dies. R.I.P. Lucy, you were full of other people's blood. Lucy, (laughs) I'm home. (laughs) Oh, you're dead. Yep, his famous catchphrase, (laughs) Lucy, I'm home, you're dead. That's the end of the show. <laughs> is he from, like, fucking Sweden? Like, I don't even know what that is. He was from a little bit of everywhere. Yeah, I'm sure. Oh, Rick. Oh, Ricky. That's Rah. not even a good Lucy. Rah. You sound like Wario. Seward says, well, at least everything is over with. Only for Van Helsing to be all like, no, it's only the beginning. Now, is it the end of the beginning? The beginning of the end? The middle of the middle? We don't know, because after that, he just leaves without explaining. Goodbye. Yeah, this is like, oh, you, you, you want to come back? Explain it, and Helsing's just like, nah. I have a movie to make. George Jackman will play me. <laughs> but before that, Anthony Hopkins, and also Mel Brooks. It's going to be a weird couple of decades. Anyway, everyone's busy planning the Western Raw mother-daughter funeral when Van Helsing sidles up to Seward and is like, hey. I'm going to put some garlic and a crucifix in the coffin. Don't ask why. Just go with it. Also, don't freak out. But after the funeral, and again, I cannot emphasize enough how not a big deal this is. We're going to have to cut Lucy's head off and take her heart out. And so it's like, what the fuck, dude? Why? And Van Helsing just sort of winks at him coyly like, you'll see. Anyway, at the funeral, Arthur is, of course, very sad that Lucy died before they could even get married. But he decides that the blood transfusion he gave her was basically like being married. And Van Helsing loses his shit laughing at this. He just starts cracking the fuck up because Arthur doesn't know about him and the other two guys also giving Lucy their blood and also being married to her, I guess, by his metric. And Van Helsing's just so fucking tickled by this that he can't contain himself. This is a for real thing that happens in the book. I love Van Helsing. Uh, Then we get another newspaper article detailing missing children in the area who were last seen with a mysterious, beautiful woman. What a mystery. Mm -hmm. But there's no time for that now. We have to go back to Mina, who finds Jonathan's journal and learns about his adventures at Castle Dracula and presumably also the three horny vampire ladies. She's pretty weirded out. And then she gets a letter out of the blue from Van Helsing, who actually she doesn't know, like at all. And it says... Hey, you don't know me, and this is crazy, but can I paw through your personal letters between you and your very close recently deceased friend Lucy, maybe? No. Okay. I'm I'm sorry. (laughs) 
And she does. In fact, she also gives him her journal entries about Lucy's weird sleepwalking shit, and then also her husband's journal, because that doesn't seem like a breach of trust or anything. Van Helsing reads it all, tells Jonathan that he's not crazy, and asks if he wants to help deal with Dracula. And Jonathan's all like, Hell yeah, that asshole threw my shaving mirror out a window. Fuck him. Van Helsing also continues cock-teasing Seward about what's actually going on by making the insane statement that he thinks the bites on the necks of the missing children are from Lucy. As in dead Lucy, who is dead. Seward is reasonably skeptical. Instead of explaining, Van Helsing is like, I could tell you what's going on, or you could come spend the night with me in the cemetery. It'll be fun, like a sleepover, but with corpses. And they do. They go to Lucy's coffin, and it's empty. Seward thinks the body must have been stolen, but then they get distracted by something off in the trees. Turns out to be another neck-bitten child, and when they return to the coffin, they find that Lucy's back in it. Seward looks around for Penn and Teller, but Van Helsing finally fucking tells him that actually, Lucy is a vampire. But Van Helsing is too busy making Arthur and Quincy also have a cemetery sleepover with him, so they can see the vampire too! You'd think he would be less about watching the evil blood monster and more about, like, killing it? He wants to see it in action. What does, it, what does that mean? He wants to see it in action. But he clearly knows, like, what it does. You want to see it happen. Okay. You don't want to just imagine it every time, you know? <laughs> it's like the eclipse. I, ha- I hate this conversation. <laughs> I know. I know, you know, like, the moon gets between the earth and the sun sometimes. But you gotta look at it before you can kill it? Yeah. Plus, maybe watching vampires is his kink, and you shouldn't kink shame. Anyway, Vampire Lucy shows up, and she's darkly sexy again. And Arthur gives Van Helsing permission to stop hating and get decapitating. And they trap her in her tomb with a communion wafer. Because I guess that counts as Jesus. I mean, the crucifix, like, I get it. It has, like, the image of Jesus on it, but, like, this is a piece of bread. Does this mean that all vampires are Catholic? Anyway, the magic anti-vampire wafer will keep Lucy trapped there until daylight, when, you know, cutting her head off and stabbing her and all that will be much easier. So the next day they do the deed. More accurately, they make Arthur do the deed. And Van Helsing decides to reveal that there's another vampire that needs a killing. Count Dracula! As I'm sure you've noticed, he's basically the Moby Dick of this book, in that he's the title character and is almost never actually on screen, so to speak. So the Dracula Avengers are finally all assembled at Dr. Seward's house. The aforementioned Doctor, Van Helsing, Mina and Jonathan, rich guy who thinks he's the only one who put his blood in Lucy, and American Dude. (laughs) Who could forget? American Dude! Speaking of, when Mina asks Arthur about Lucy, he bursts into tears, because, like, he's still pretty traumatized about having to drive a stake through her undead body. Like, you can't blame a guy. And even though she doesn't really know him, Mina lets him cry it out, and asks Quincy if he too would like a good cry. But he declines, because he's too American to cry. Just, like, imagine a bald eagle screeching here, like, (coughs) Yes. And while we're talking gender stereotypes... Well, I guess that's a country stereotype, not that he's a manly... Well, I guess that Americans are manly men, and manly men don't cry. So, while we're talking gender stereotypes, Van Helsing wants everyone to know how awesome Mina is. Like, he thinks Mina is great, based on all the notes and journals and everything she's put together to help them solve this Dracula biz. She's so smart and competent, why? It's like she has a man's brain. Yeah, that's the compliment. A brain unsullied by estrogen and period blood, I guess. Fucking 1897. So Van Helsing gives them a rundown of Dracula's strengths and weaknesses. He can control the weather and some animals and is super strong and can also turn to dust. So I guess like he can give you allergies on top of all of that. But he loses these powers and is basically a useless baby during the day. Note that the sunlight doesn't kill him. It just pisses him off. The movie Nosferatu is where the sunlight equals death thing comes from, but we'll get to that. Nosferatu. Nosferatu. It's so fun to say. They grab some garlic, holy water, etc., and head to his lair in the Carfax estate to ruin all the dirt he brought with him to sleep in, because it's his special dirt and the only place where he can sleep. Right before that, though, Seward is called to see Renfield, who is acting uncomfortably sane and normal and asks to be allowed to leave. Seward is like, 
Not now, you little weirdo. Maybe tomorrow if you haven't crammed any more fucking spiders down your face hole. And Renfield gets all cryptic like, well, I warned you. And Seward's like, meh. They bust into Dracula's house. And when I say they, I mean everyone but Mina because man brain or not, she's still a woman and therefore not allowed to do cool things. And they find 29 of the 50 dirt boxes Dracula brought with him from Transylvania. They fuck those up but they have no idea where the other 21 could be, which is a problem. Still, they call it a job well done and head back, and Jonathan notices that Mina seems... pale. You wanna give me a dun dun dun? Dun dun dun! Get to the tanning bed! Bikini (laughs) season's coming! Gotta get that base tan on! Then we get Mina's account of what she did while the boys played with dirt. Mostly, be pissed off at not also being allowed to go play with dirt. And then she had dreams about being attacked by smoke with red eyes and, like, put two and two together, Mina! Use that manly brain! In the meantime, Dr. Seward gets called back to Renfield to find him with his face smashed the fuck in, lying in a pool of blood. Van Helsing drills a hole in his skull, a hole hole in his skull, and he regains consciousness to tell them that Dracula is after Mina, and after he came for her that first night when the boys were too busy at Drac's house, Renfield got second thoughts about the whole affair and tried to stop him, so Drac bashed his head in. Aw, Renfield, you big fucking weirdo, you do care. When a hero comes along. <laughs> what? Dun, dun, dun. You really committed to that? Van Helsing and Seward race to Mina and Jonathan's and stumble onto some kind of BDSM situation where Jonathan is unconscious on the bed and Dracula is forcing Mina to drink blood from a cut in his chest. It It's super weird, and then Dracula turns into mist while going, Don't kink shame! And escapes. Do you think she slipped her tongue into the little cut? Nope! Nope! Ew! Fuck! God! You're nasty. Everyone feels like an asshole for making Mina stay home alone while they went vampire busting, and she makes them feel even shittier by being like, look, if I start to go all vampire-y, I'll just kill myself, because I'm just that fucking hardcore and cooler than you. They track down the rest of the boxes that Dracula brought with him in another house he rented, but there's still one dirt box unaccounted for. Mina gets an idea that the Scooby gang can use Dracula's influence over her as, like, a Drac GPS to track him down by hypnotizing her. And it works, because Mina is awesome, and everyone else can go suck it. Bleep, Essentially, they learn that Dracula has left the country on a ship in his last special dirt box, and assume he's running home to Transylvania. And you know what that means? Road trip! No! Sleep! Help! Transylvania! Except instead of gas station snacks and fun car games, it's Mina making all of the men, including her husband, promise to kill her if she turns vampire. Everyone is sad, and no one wants to play the license plate game. So they travel up and down Transylvania playing warmer, colder, with Mina's special Dracula connection to try to hunt him down, until Dracula figures it out and puts the proverbial sticky note over his webcam, cutting them off. They all split up to try and follow the count, Jonathan going with Arthur, Seward with Quincy, and leaving the only two actually interesting characters, Van Helsing and Mina. How can they possibly guess where he'll be? Where could where could he go in all of Transylvania? How about his fucking house? He went back to Castle Dracula! Dipshits! Van Helsing and Mina beat everyone, including Dracula, to the castle. And Van Helsing, lunatic that he is, is like, you know, fuck this shit, hold my beer various other cliches, and heads into the castle alone, stab murders the sexy vampire ladies, R.I.P. vampire ladies, you were very sexy, and finds Dracula's home dirt and fills it with holy water and Jesus crackers and then fucks on out of there like the crazy old badass that he is. Meanwhile, Arthur, Jonathan, Seward, and Quincy all converge on a group of gypsies. Because, you know, 19th century racism, dirty, evil, foreign gypsies helping Dracula. They're hauling Dracula inside his special dirt box to the castle. They get in a fight, and Dracula falls out of the box, basically useless, because it's daylight. Jonathan slits his throat, and a wounded Quincy stakes him through the heart. And that's it. He turns to dust, and blows away, and then Quincy dies. R.I.P. Quincy, you were from Texas. So, yeah, if it was as easy as all fucking that, why didn't Jonathan just shovel murder him when he had the chance at the beginning of the book? Ugh. 
The book concludes with a journal entry from Jonathan seven years later and says that he and Mina had a kid who was born the same day of the year that Quincy died. So they named him Quincy. I mean, it could have been worse. It's also the same day Dracula died. They could have pulled a J.K. Rowling and named him Quincy Dracula Harker. He also wants us to know that Dr. Seward and Arthur have married. He probably means to other women, but I'm just going to assume it's to each other. Also, Van Helsing is still crazy. And they all learned a valuable lesson. Don't trust foreign people. No, but really, that's the lesson. The end. Well, if it's anti-Semitic, which it probably is, don't trust Jews. Well, don't trust anyone from, like, the dark parts of Europe, basically. England, France, they're about your Germany, maybe even. That's probably fine. Not the weird, dirty Europeans that we don't talk about. So, a couple things about this novel you just uh, told us about there, Meg. Mm. First, was it always called Dracula? The title for the book, at least according to Bram's own notes... And the original manuscript that he wrote was The Undead. And it was hastily changed as it was, like, sent to the printer. That people were like, no, 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 The Undead, don't like that, we're gonna call it Dracula. You know, it would have been less frustrating to me that it, if it had been called The Undead, because it's like, it's called Dracula, and Dracula's just like, hey, I'm here, okay, I'm gone again. Now I'm back, oh, now I'm dead. So, Dracula didn't make Bram a lot of money. It wasn't a huge, huge hit. The critics liked it fine and audiences were fine with it there were just a lot of travel tales and adventure stories at the time and this kind of fit in with them there was stuff from hager there was stuff from kipling stuff from robert Louis stevenson arthur conan doyle hg wells Ooh, all right, that's a, yeah that's a crowded market that's tough and so people read this and went yeah it's one of these other tales exciting fine whatever and so even though people liked it it wasn't a huge deal. It wasn't actually until the movies came out and there were adaptations where people were like, wow, this story's really awesome. And so nowadays we look back at Stoker as like being awesome, that he's just up there with Shelley and Poe and uh, Bronte. And so it's actually after the fact that he became someone that is read along all the other Victorians and is considered among the best Victorian writers way after the fact, just because people decided, hey, we should make movies out of this character. So what's interesting about Dracula adaptations is like what you were saying, that at the time, people were just kind of like, you know, yeah. And in the story itself, you don't even really know anything about Dracula. There's not really a backstory. Um, There's not a lot of solid characterization apart from like sucking blood and collecting vampire ladies for his vampire harem. So what the first kind of movie and what all subsequent adaptations kind of have done have been to try to fill in the gaps and make old D-Rack a more compelling character. Which is probably why, like what RJ was saying, is when the movie came out that everybody got way more about Dracula. More than 200 movies about Dracula have been made. That's not even touching literary sequels, prequels, reimaginings, etc. Stage plays, musicals, operas, radio dramas, anime, cartoons, comic books, TV shows. Just movies. And there's more than 200, and that's second only to Sherlock Holmes. So the very first adaptation of Dracula was written for the stage by old Bram the Toker Stoker himself. It was performed just once on May 18th, 1897, and took 15 actors more than four hours to perform and was by all accounts just completely and absolutely terrible. And that would be it until 1922 with F.W. Murnau's famous Nosferatu. You want to give that another go? It's just fun. Nosferatu. That's great. An unauthorized German adaptation of Dracula, which changed the names. Count Dracula becomes Count Orlok. And some of the plot, but is still pretty clearly Dracula. To the point where Florence Stoker sued Murnau and demanded not just royalties, but also to have the film destroyed. Prints and negatives and all, which seems a little unnecessarily vindictive, but whatever. In 1925, she finally won the suit, but... Luckily, one print managed to survive and became, you know, it's considered like a masterpiece of German expressionist horror. In 1924, while that shit was going on, an Irish actor named Hamilton Dean actually bothered to get permission from the widow Stoker to readapt Brahms' stinker of a stage adaptation and give it another go. It did better this time, and in 1927 was revised again, and the third time's the charm, because this one made it to Broadway and starred Bela Lugosi, who would, of course, go on to star as Dracula in the Universal film version in 1931, helping to kick off that Universal Monsters film phase we talked about in our Frankenstein episode. 
And like Frankenstein, this is where things start to peel off from the book, as Drac goes from being gross and weird to charming, handsome, and oh so fashionable with that satin cape of his. Also, this movie coined the quote that Stoker can only wish to have written, which is, I never drink wine. It's good. It's a good line. Universal made seven Dracula movies, including Dracula's Daughter, Son of Dracula, House of Dracula, and House of Frankenstein, which is weird that that's considered a Dracula movie. Instead of actually researching them, I prefer to imagine that they're rival frat houses on a wacky monsters-only campus. Anyway, in 1958, Hammer Films took over and made nine more Dracula movies, most of which starred world's scariest human Christopher Lee as Dracula, including one just like straight-up adaptation of the book, which is considered to be one of the best film adaptations, along with some less good ones like Taste the Blood of Dracula and Dracula AD 1972. There have been a bazillion other Dracula movies from then till now, obviously. Some notable standouts being the famous exploitation movie Blackula, Francis Ford Coppola's version in 1992, which had Gary Oldman as a very sad Dracula, and Keanu Reeves as a moderately sexy, if not particularly British, Jonathan Harker. In 1995, Mel Brooks made Dracula, Dead and Loving It, starring the late great Leslie Nielsen. Within the last 20 years, though, poor Dracula has been through some shit being played by Gerard Butler in Dracula 2000, being shot into space in Dracula 3000, title unrelated, and uh, the Hugh Jackman Van Helsing movie that apparently starred Vin Diesel, (laughs) being played by Adam Sandler in Hotel Transylvania, all the way to 2014's Dracula Untold, the first shot at relaunching the Universal Monsters universe by showing us how Vlad was actually just a hunky, misunderstood Luke Evans who got vampire powers to try and protect his kingdom from the Turks. As an aside, we now know that when Sexy Dracula failed, we got the Sexy Mummy movie, and that has also since failed. I'm still holding out hope for a sexy creature from the Black Lagoon. And Drax done pretty well for himself in Japan, actually, with the Castlevania Games franchise, where he's a recurring villain slash character. In Japanese, the game is actually called Demon Castle Dracula. And also in the well-known anime and manga series, Helsing and Vampire Hunter D. I mean, like, Dude, I could be doing this shit, like, all day. Every fucking comic book and cartoon character has, like, fought Dracula. I didn't even mention Count Chocula, so, like, I just I just got a call here. There's a lot of fucking Dracula shit. And so we come to the end. <laughs> RJ. Yes? Dracula. Good. Bad. Or terrifying. Well, I don't get scared. No. I ain't afraid of no pyres. <laughs> But, good. I don't like Megan over here. I don't mind the epistolatory approach. I like it better here than in Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Because in Frankenstein... Stein. Like, stop. It it becomes, like I think I said it in that episode, it becomes like a turducken that you're reading the story told through the one guy's letters that's told through the story that Victor told to him that at one point is the story that he's being told by the monster and it's, like, ridiculous... Since this one kind of swaps back and forth, you get all these different characters' points of view, along with, like, extra stuff, like the newspaper articles that I mentioned, and then, like, a captain's log and some stuff that I just, you know, left out for time. And that's cool, because it's almost like a found footage kind of thing, but in book form. So, I actually find the epistolary approach in this book way more fun than in a lot of other books. I also don't mind the fact there's not a lot of Dracula in it. It makes it much more psychological, and we also get that through the point of view of being able to see everyone's point of view. Do I enjoy Dracula? Megan? Yep. Dracula. Good or bad? (laughs) Good daddy or bad daddy? Uh, The best dream daddy? (laughs) The best count daddy. Uh, (laughs) I like it. It's another one of the books that I actually didn't read for school. I just read it on my own for funsies because it was like, oh, Dracula book. And... Yeah, it's a fun book, although I still am disappointed by the lack of Dracula. And also, I forgot how fucking lame Dracula's death was. Like, he's literally Moby Dick, that he's this shadowy presence that haunts the edges of the story, and then he dies. My brain had, like, rewritten a way better death for him, and then when I went back and read it, it was like, oh, damn it. But overall, like, no, it's a super fun book, and I like it. So, good. Give it, give it a read if you want to get into that Halloween spirit. 
And that will about do it for us on this episode of Oh No Lit Class. That was kind of more Dracula having a stroke. Um, if you're feeling especially spooky, then you should subscribe to us and give us ratings and reviews on iTunes because we don't have many of those at all. We might send you holy water. We might. We might throw Jesus crackers at you. This week's podcast, pal, I told you I was going to do it again, is Our Strange Skies, a show that doesn't exist yet, but will be premiering early next year, and is everything you ever wanted to know, and many things you probably didn't know, about aliens. No, I guess that voice doesn't really work for that. It may not be out yet, but I know it's going to be awesome, because the Twitter is great, and Rob, the guy who runs it, is a super cool dude. It was Paul Hellyer, the former Canadian Minister of Defense, that said, UFOs are as real as airplanes flying overhead. And here at the Our Strange Skies podcast, we're going to take that seriously. Starting in January, we'll be looking into UFO events, incidents, and myths that make up our American identity, from the pre-Roswell era to the post-Roswell era. We'll be covering some of the lesser-known incidents, like the Aztec UFO crash of 1948, John Everill's colonial UFO encounter, and Robert Richardson's 1967 brush with the Men in Black. We'll also be covering some of the more well-known incidents like the Roswell crash and doing in-depth profiles on people like J. Allen Hynek, Sergeant Clifford Stone, and many more. Look out for the Our Strange Skies podcast in January. In the meantime, don't forget to look up because you never know what you'll find in Our Strange Skies. In Grey We Trust. You can listen to us. Blah, no. You can like blah, us. On- blah, 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 blah. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and listen to us everywhere, and always find us at ohnolitclass.com. The spooky chills will continue on October 26th. Ooh. Ooh. I'm RJ. I'm still a ghostly Megan. Well, catch you on the flip side. We love you. Bye. Train noise. Choo-choo. <laughs>